We're gonna do cell biology review um, and we're just gonna get started with defining a cell. And a cell is the basic um, component of a living organism. It's the smallest unit of a living organism. And there's kind of like this hierarchy of what composes a living organism. And the smallest unit of that is the cell. And a group of cells make up a tissue. Um, and uh, tissues um, that have a specific function can make up an organ. And then organs that work together for a specific function make up an organ system. And then when different organ systems interact with each other and help, you know, and work together, they make up an organism. So just to review or recap that, that cell makes up the tissues, which makes up the organs, which makes up the organ systems, which makes up the organism. Next, we will define tissue, which I think I just did, which is a group of cells, you know, that work towards a specific function. Um, and the study of tissues is called histology. Uh, there's many different types of cells in the body, nerve cells, blood cells, muscle cells, digestive cells, lung cells, um, and they all look a little different, and that contributes to the diversity of human cells, and I think it's very fascinating. Um, but no matter what cell we're dealing with, um, every human cell, or every eukaryotic cell, um, has three basic components, and that's going to be a nucleus, um, a cytoplasm, and a cell membrane. Very important right there. A nucleus, a cytoplasm, and a cell membrane. The nucleus is sort of the core of the cell that houses important genetic material. Um, the cytoplasm is essentially a word for just everything that's inside the cell. And the cell membrane is the kind of the layer, the walls of the house, if you will, and kind of encloses everything that's within the cell membrane. Um, it's like it's, it's like that's fencing, almost, so to speak, of the cell. Um, and within the cell, within the cytoplasm is cytosol and uh, organelles. Um, I, I say cytosol because that's the fluid part of, of the cytoplasm. And I think a lot of people get that confused. But cytoplasm is just the general term for everything that's within the cell, not the fluid part. The fluid part is called cytosol. And within um, the cytoplasm, so you have cytosol and you also have organelles, uh, which is also which means organs. And they're like these little structures within the cell that do all these different functions. So you can think of a cell as kind of like a house, you know, or or even a, a world. You know, everyone, every little part of the cell has its own function, and and and, uh, and some uh, organelles, um, most organelles are actually covered within their own membrane. Um, a few parts of the uh, cell organelles are not membranous, and that's going to be the centrioles and cilia, which is unique to certain cells, not all, like lung cells or digestive cells in the small intestinal tract. Um, but there are some important organelles that we should go through. Uh, mitochondria is, some say, the powerhouse of the cell. That's where we produce ATP, or cellular energy. Um, and that's where cellular respiration occurs. Um, we can have multiple mitochondria, depending on the cell. 
uh, ribosomes. These are the houses that make up proteins. These are like these little circles you'll see. They can be on the rough ER or the rough endoplasmic reticulum in the cell, or they can be free-floating through the cytosol. Um, but they are the sites in which protein synthesis occurs. Uh, next, we have rough ER. I just mentioned that in reference to the ribosomes, but rough endoplasmic reticulum, it surrounds, it's like this highway system kind of that surrounds the nucleus. And that's um, where uh, proteins are kind of made and also um, kind of uh, transported through on its way to the Golgi apparatus, which we'll get to in a minute, um, because um, you know, rough ER is um, identified by having ribosomes on it, and it's responsible for the transport or production of proteins. Whereas smooth endoplasmic reticulum is a little different. It's important for making carbohydrates and lipids, um, but it also is known for having some detoxification uh, function. Uh, so, uh, for example, if you're an alcoholic or somebody you know is an alcoholic, they're going to have a lot more smooth ER to kind of uh, recycle and pro de detoxify and all that alcohol. And it's going to be happening in the, at the cellular level and within the smooth ER specifically. Um, but like I said, going back to the proteins within the ribosomes that could be located on the rough ER, uh, once that protein gets sent through from the rough ER, it's making its way to the Golgi apparatus. And it's a good way to think of the Golgi apparatus as like a UPS. You know, it could ship domestic within the cell or it could ship international outside of the cell. And that's kind of like the packaging plant. It kind of just gets proteins prepared for where they need to go. Packaging and preparing and shipping pro uh, proteins out. Next, we have peroxisomes. Uh, which carry enzymes that neutralize potentially dangerous free radicals, things that could damage um, our genetics and cause lead to cancer and oxidative stress within the body. We can get into more of that later. Um, but essentially, it's going to negate uh, the oxidative oxidative processes within the body. It also takes part in lipid metabolism um, and catabolism of amino acids. Um, so peroxisomes are a little unique, you know, multifaceted organelle within the cell. Um, and it's morphologically similar to lysosomes, which we're going to get in a second, in that it carries uh, certain enzymes to help break down certain things. Um, but it's, it's definitely involved in a variety of metabolic reactions, um, which some of it relates to a very important aspects of energy metabolism. They kind of got their name from what they do in terms of carrying out oxidative or oxidation reactions because it led to the production of hydrogen peroxide, hence peroxisomes. But because hydrogen peroxide is harmful to the cell, they also have another enzyme um, that helps counteract that. Um, but because they do oxidation, they can oxidize fatty acids, hence being an important major source of metabolic energy or at least assisting in the energy production. So peroxisomes, two main roles, uh, breaking down harmful, uh, uh, harmful free radicals, and aiding in the oxidation of fatty acids for um, energy metabolism. And 
then, like I mentioned, next we're getting into lysosomes, also known as the suicide sac in the cell, because if this organelle were to burst, um, it would lead to cell death, apoptosis. The cell would suicide, and it would kill itself. Um, and although that's one of its main functions, its other function is that it kind of absorbs um, dysfunctional or malfunctioning um, organelles and other cellular waste to kind of help break it down. Um, next we have the cytoskeleton, um, which gives structure and form to the cell. Um, and it's, it's hard to simulate the idea of what it looks like, but it is all throughout the cell. Um, you know, I suggest seeing a YouTube video about this. There's three types of filamentous rods that make up the cytoskeleton. Um, a mnemonic for this is MIMS. Um, you have the first M is microtubules, which makes up the bulk of, uh, of the cytoskeleton. Then you have intermediate filaments, and then you have microfilaments. And um, microfilaments are kind of like these stringy structures that kind of go all throughout the cell, kind of providing some shape, form, function. And then you have microtubules that look like tubes that do the same thing. Um, last but not least, you have centrosomes which is an organelle near the nucleus of a cell, and it contains the centrioles um, from which the spindle fibers develop in cell division. So centrosomes house the centrioles, which is very important for uh, mitosis, cellular division, which we'll get into very soon. Um, next up, we uh, need to explain why the plasma membrane forms a bilayer in nature. Um, I think, so... Uh, the, membrane, the plasma membrane is selectively permeable. Um, just like your house, you know, you're not going to let everything in. You're going to permit only some things to come in, like that Amazon package or some fresh air, especially in the summertime. Um, you're going to, you know, think of this, the plasma membrane as this thin, you know, selectively, um, very selective um, sort of uh, bouncer that kind of will decide what comes in and what doesn't. And the plasma membrane is made up of the phospholipid bilayer. Bilayer meaning two phospholipids joined at the tails, the hydrophobic um, fat, fatty acid tails, and the phosphate heads, which are, you know, hydrophilic or polar, they're water-loving. So they're facing the part of the cell that's uh, outside of its environment, um, you know, whether, which we call interstitial fluid, which is the fluid that surrounds the external environment of the cell. Um, and it does that so it can move through because, again, it's hydrophilic. Um, but, again, this, the, the reason we have this bilayer is because it allows for the selective permeability in that, you know, only certain things can kind of pass through. Uh, for example, if certain things are nonpolar, the certain nonpolar nutrients or uh, materials that the cell will need, those things could pass through the membrane itself um, through diffusion. Um, so that's just a good example. Selectively permeable, it just means that the cell is going to be very selective, you know, very picky, very choosy about what it's letting in and sometimes what it's letting out too. Um, and this kind of leads into um, passive and active transport. I did mention something called diffusion, and um, we're going to, that's a form of passive transport. So there's two. So, you know, a cell doesn't live, live on its own. There's things coming and going, and that's called transport. There's passive and active. Um, there's three main types of passive transport. 
diffusion, facilitated diffusion, and osmosis. Let's start with diffusion. Diffusion is the uh, passing of solutes um, or substances through um, the semipermeable membrane um, down its concentration gradient. So in order for something to be passive, it cannot require energy um, or ATP. So when I say some, a solute is going down its concentration gradient, that means that it's going from a, a high concentration of its solute uh, to a low concentration. Um, and so, you know, like for example, cholesterol can kind of, is, with, is embedded within the, the uh, phospholipid bilayer cell membrane. So it might let in some lipids that can also pass through, through just diffusion, just can simply diffuse into the cell. Um, another thing we have is facilitated diffusion. Um, and before I get into facilitated diffusion, I think it's just important to also note an example of diffusion. Um, and that could be like spraying a pump of perfume and letting it diffuse into the room until the concentration of that perfume is equal all throughout the room. We're trying to reach some sort of dynamic equilibrium and that there, the concentration of whatever solute that was sprayed or, you know, into that air, for example, is even throughout. So we don't want to have, you know, an area where there's high, you know, to low or low to high. We want to maintain sort of an equal concentration all throughout, you know, different areas. Um, so facilitated diffusion is the process of spontaneous passive transport of molecules or ions um, across the cell membrane through specific integral programs, transmembrane integral programs proteins. So these proteins are embedded within the membrane, the cell membrane, and they kind of act as like a channel almost, letting in certain molecules or ions that can't just diffuse through the phospholipid bilayer. It needs it needs help. It needs facilitation. So, you know, everybody needs some help. Some molecules and ions just need a little extra help, and that's what we call facilitated diffusion. There's again, there's no energy involved in this type of passive transport. Uh, because the molecules are moving from a high concentration to a low concentration of its solute. Um, there's like two different types of transmembrane proteins that really help in facilitated diffusion. That's channel proteins, as I kind of just mentioned, they're kind of like a door almost. Um, and they have this gate and they kind of open and close when certain ions or molecules are passing through it. And then they have a carrier protein where there kind of needs to be um, certain set of conditions in order for kind of similar to what a channel protein does. It kind of, you know, will, um, when there are certain conditions present or certain molecules or ions present together, then it'll let the, you know, let them pass through. Um, so that's facilitated diffusion. There are certain things can, that can affect facilitated diffusion, uh, which is temperature, concentration, of the solute and um, distance, you know, how, how far does this um, molecule have to travel and the, the size of the molecule. Um, smaller molecules that are also lighter will diffuse faster than larger ones. And um, last passive form of transport is um, osmosis or the movement of water, um, water molecules um, down its concentration gradient. Um, across a, a semi-permeable membrane, 
Um, it's essentially the entry of water into the cell. Um, and there's, it's similar to facilitated diffusion, but this is specifically for water. Um, and there's a specific protein on the, tr on the membrane called an aquaporin. And this helps aid in the, um, in the passage of water molecules. Again, down its concentration gradient. Um, and water, is, osmosis is very important um, because uh, it will always follow solutes. So water always follows solute. Uh, for example, salt, you know, it's going to follow, it, it, water's always going to try to dilute whatever solute is in the cell or outside of the cell. And this kind of goes into other very important uh, concepts such as osmotic pressure and tonicity. So osmotic pressure of a solution is an indication of the force with which pure water moves into that solution as a result of its solute concentration. So let me break that down. <laughs> Let's say, for example, you have a U-shaped tube. And in the middle um, of the U is a semi-permeable, selectively permeable membrane or semi-permeable membrane. And you have water on each side. But one of the differences is that uh, one side has more solute than the other. And that solute can't pass through to the other side to equalize the concentration. So what's going to happen is water is going to sit, which can pass through the membrane, is going to go over to the other side of the of the the tube. And because it's going to try to dilute that con that higher concentration, the volume of level of the water is going to increase. And so water is essentially moving through the membrane, it's osmosis, creating this pressure on the other side, an increase in pressure. Um, and we can prevent this pressure by adding a hydrostatic pressure, which is required to stop the osmotic flow. Because water is always going to flow to where there's more concentration of a solute. Um, so just remember that hydro osmotic pressure is the pressure formed from water flowing to a high sol uh, high solute concentration, and the opposing force of that is hydrostatic pressure, um, which pushes against that fluid buildup and opposes the osmotic pressure. So that way, we don't have a net. There's no net osmotic flow. There's no net flow of of uh, of osmosis of water. We're stopping that osmotic pressure via hydrostatic pressure just by applying force. So that way the volume levels on each side of that U-tube is the same. And I know I haven't gotten to uh, active transport yet. We're still on the topic of passive transport within osmosis. Um, and I talked about osmotic pressure and its opposing force, hydrostatic pressure. But I also think it's important to talk about osmolarity and tonicity. These are very important concepts when relating to osmosis. Um, osmolarity is similar to molarity, which is like moles over liters. Um, but the way it differs is that instead of moles, you're dealing with osmoles of solute uh, particles per unit of volume of solution. So osmolarity is essentially just the concentration of solute in a solution, in an aqueous solution. Very similar to molarity again, just dealing with osmoles instead of moles. Another word for osmolarity is osmotic concentration. And 
And when the concentration of solutes starts to affect uh, the size of a cell, then we call that tonicity. Um, uh, and again, that's just the effects of various osmotic solutions on cells. So although osmolarity and tonicity are used interchangeably, they are not the same thing. Osmolarity is the solute concentration of a solution, and tonicity describes how that solution affects the shape of a cell. And there's two main, uh, three main types of uh, tonicities of, of just, you know, different types of solutions regarding their tonicity. There's isotonic solution, uh, which means that there's no osmotic flow taking place, and that the size and shape of the cell should look normal. Uh, we see this a lot of example with uh, red blood cells. Um, <clears throat> so if the solution's isotonic, that means that there, there, you know, is water still moving, but it there's no net, there's really no net flow um, because the concentration of solute outside of the cell is the same as inside the cell. Iso meaning the same, tonic, you know, tension. So it's kind of like the same kind of, concentration between um, the cell and the, and the environment, meaning that water doesn't have to do anything to dilute because there's the, the concentration gradient is kind of the same all throughout. And now if you have a blood cell and you put it in a hypotonic solution, hypo meaning low, and that's referring to the fact that the solution has a low concentration of solute, then that's going to cause water to flow into the cell and uh, cause the swell the cell to swell up like a balloon. And another way to think about it is like hypo, it's going to blow, the cell's going to blow up, it's going to swell up. And why does it do that? Um, it eventually bursts, causing hemolysis or, or just lysis. Um, well, that's because there is more uh, solute concentration in the cell than in the solution because again hypotonic low concentration of solute in the solution versus the cell there's higher concentration of solute in the cell and so where's water going to flow water always wants to dilute water follows solute so the water is going to follow or go into the cell try to dilute that con high higher concentration so um again it's going to cause the cell to burst hypo it's going to blow and then lead to hemolysis. Uh, hemo is blood. So we're talking about this, you know, we're, we're within this example of like, you know, using a red blood cell in uh, different types of solutions, uh, tenis you know, different tonicities um, or concentrations or osmolarity, so to speak. Um, and uh, just how they affect the cell. Um, so Let's say on the flip side, we put a red blood cell in a hypertonic solution. Hyper means high. So that, so the solution outside of the cell uh, is higher in solute than it is inside the cell. So that means that water is going to flow to uh, outside of the cell to dilute the higher concentration of solute outside of the cell. And that's going to cause the cell to shrivel up and kind of shrivel up like a little raisin, and that's called crenation. The cell's going to crenate, um, not cremate, crenate with an N. Um, and it's uh, because the uh, water is always going to 
try to dilute a high, you know, higher concentration. It's always going to go to where the concentration of solute is high. And if you're in a hypertonic solution, which means that there's more solute out of the cell than in the cell, where do you think water's going to flow? Out of the cell. What's that going to do to the cell? It's going to shrink. It's going to shrivel up and crenate. And so I know that was a, a big uh, tangent um, regarding osmosis, which is uh, the third uh, and final form of passive transport. But now we will get into active transport, which does require energy uh, for different solutes or substances to kind of pass through the semi-permeable cell membrane uh, using energy. And so uh, the reason why it's going to use energy is because uh, we're moving molecules and ions across a membrane from a low concentration to a high concentration region. It's going against the concentration gradient. And that's going to require cellular, cellular energy, ATP, to do this movement. Uh, there's two types of active transport, primary and secondary. Primary transport directly uses ATP to transport molecules across the membrane. Um, an example of this is ion pumps or ion channels like sodium and potassium. In the sodium-potassium pump, um, there's usually a higher concentration of uh, potassium, or it needs to maintain a higher concentration of potassium of um, potassium into in the cell. So again, because we're going from a, a low to high concentration, and so we uh, take in uh, two potassium molecules. Um, for every three sodium molecules that leave the cell. So we're expelling sodium in exchange for potassium and because the you know there's the concentration gradients of each solute is against the concentration gradient that requires energy. Um, there's uh, just a few things that do affect the sodium potassium pump. When the concentration rises the pump becomes more active. Um, and so ATP will be more readily available because the rate of the transport depends on the concentration of sodium ions in the cytoplasm. And fun fact, uh, the energy demands of this sodium-potassium pump is about 40% of the ATP produced by a resting cell. That's how much it uses up, 40%. That's a lot. Um, another th important thing to remember in um, the sodium-potassium exchange pump is that the sodium ion concentration is high in the extracellular fluid or the interstitial fluid, but low in the cytoplasm. So that's, again, why we're trying to bring sodium ions out of the cell, because it's going from low to high. Um, so next up we have secondary active transport, um, which is a type of transport that doesn't necessarily require ATP directly, this is why it's called co-transport or coupled transport, because there's no direct coupling of ATP. It kind of relies on this electrochemical potential difference created by pumping ions in and out of the cell. And I know it's a little complicated, but for our purposes, you know, the sodium potassium, uh, for, se for secondary active transport, um, just know that there's no direct coupling of ATP involved. Um, an example of this is glucose transport by a carrier protein. 
Um, and this can only take place with a carrier protein when the, you know, there's two sodium ions bound to that, um, that carrier protein. So kind of like what I mentioned before, there's different types of protein in the phospholipid bilayer. This is one of them that deals with transport and it's specifically secondary active transport. This is just an example, um, you know, for getting glucose into the cell. For every three glucose, you need six sodium ions um, in order to kind of let that carrier protein do its job. That's the cost, really, um, at the cost of two ATP molecules. So it does still require energy because um, in a way it's kind of almost like a pump, but it's more of a gate, but it, requ it has all these specific conditions and it, it just it definitely relies on ATP uh, secondarily via like the sodium potassium pump in order for the glucose transport via the carrier protein to work. So it's not using ATP directly, it's using the ATP that's kind of, you know, associated with the sodium potassium pump, because again, you need those those uh, three sodium ions to um, help move, I mean, you need the six sodium ions to move the three glucose molecules. And I think that's enough for um, secondary active transport. Uh, but I think it's also important that we talk about uh, penocytosis. So that's the transport of um, extra, uh, of uh, fluid, different types of fluid into the cell. Um, specifically, it's the formation of endosomes filled with extracellular fluid. Uh, most cells carry this process out, and essentially it's called cell drinking penocytosis. So the cell is drinking in or it's engulfing, you know, uh, fluids from uh, the interstitial uh, environment. Um, and phagocytosis, uh, also known as cell eating, um, is engulfing uh, solid objects, uh, larger objects, to be uh, brought into the cell. And conversely to phagocytosis and penocytosis, where things are going in, then you have exocytosis, which uh, are um, vesicles formed uh, to get things out, such as waste products or hormones that need to get sent to somebody somewhere else in the body. Um, so these are important, um, you know, parts of. Uh, these are really more receptor-mediated uh, types of transport, you know, endocytosis. Um, but they kind of feed into the, you know, transport. You know, we just went through passive transport, active transport, and I guess, you know, receptor-mediated transport, such as penocytosis and phagocytosis, which are more vesicular types of transport. Um, so next up, we're going to cover the fun part, cell cycle, um, including all its phases. So, um... A eukaryotic cell, human cell, is going to um, live in two main, main uh, major phases. And that's interphase, you're usually going to find a cell in interphase, or uh, mitosis, M phase. Um, and so well, let's get into that. What does that look like? So sometimes a lot of people like to explain this with like a diagram of a circle. And most, the majority of that circle is taken up by interphase. Um, and then some smaller portion of that circle is taken up by myto uh, M phase or mitosis. So let's jump into the phase that we're more or most likely to find a cell in, which is interphase. And that uh, interphase is composed of three main uh, three subphases, G1, S, and G2. G1, uh, also known as growth phase one or gap one phase, um, is 
the longest phase of a cell's life cycle. And um, it's known as a growth um, where cells are just kind of living and growing, doing their own thing um, and, and developing until they get to um, S phase. So S stands for synthesis. And that's kind of once a cell kind of has reached its like ultimate potential and it's kind of dying down, it's going to start to synthesize uh, DNA, get copies DNA in this phase. Um, and then that once it's, you know, the DNA is copied, um, getting ready for, you know, that uh, mitosis, that M phase, we're not there yet. It's going to enter G2 or growth two gap two phase. And this is the shortest cycle of um, a cell's life. And again, it's just kind of not much, too much is going on here other than it's just getting ready for that mitosis. Um, and then the M phase is really where the big uh, meat and potatoes is when it comes to a cell's life cycle. Um, so you have the M phase, and at the end of the M phase is cytosis. So we're going to get into all of this. Uh, cytokinesis, I mean. I'm sorry. Um, so M phase is um, when the cell divides. And there's different phases within M phase. And so one of the mnemonics to remember that is PMAT, um, prophase, metaphase, anaphase, and telophase. So in prophase, um, there's a lot of things that kind of go on. The um, First off, the um, nucleus uh, or the nucleolus kind of disappears. Um, the the DNA are usually existing in their chromatin phase, and uh, that's just unwound uh, DNA, and it's going to wind itself up into chromosomes. And um, the uh, nucleus will kind of also disappear in this phase. And another thing that happens is that um, the uh, centrosomes kind of um, get those uh, centromeres, uh, cent the centrioles, um, centered to uh, towards the poles of the opposite poles of the cell, um, and uh, what's happening with the centrioles kind of moving towards opposite poles of the cells that while it's doing that, it's kind of emitting these like finger-like tubes, these you know microtubules that are going to attach themselves to the chromosomes and get them kind of situated along the line of the middle, which leads into metaphase. Metaphase, think M, think middle. It's leading into the middle of the cell, and that's where the chromosomes are kind of aligning in the middle of the cell. So even though the chromosomes are in the middle, that's not to say that the centrioles um, are on the uh, edges or the uh, polar sides of the cell. Um, and uh, so in metaphase, the, um, the chromosomes... Um, just remember there's uh, 23 chromosomes um, and, you know, you have 46 pairs, something like that. So you are going to be um, getting everything ready in the middle uh, for the next phase, which is anaphase. And that's the splitting of the, uh, cr of, the um, of the chromosomes. And then during this, you know, but during metaphase, you know, when you have those um, chromosomes lined up in the equator of the cell. It's very important for anaphase because when they split up, you're going to have the sister chromatid, um, or which is half of the chromosome, 
on either side of the uh, of the cell. And that's very important for, you know, when the cell actually goes to divide, it's going to have its own pro its own uh, chromosomes via the chromatids. So in the anaphase, um, the spindle fibers from those centrioles that are on the poles of the ends of the cell, the opposite ends, they're opposite each other. Um, they're going to pull those sister chromatids apart at the centromere, which is the center of that chromosome, and pull it towards the centriole. So those spindle fibers are attaching to the centromere, which is the center of that, uh, that chromosome, and they're getting, they're getting their sisters. You know, each of them are getting a sister. That's it. That's how it's, what's happening in anaphase. And each chromatid is called a chromosome. So, you know, the spindle fibers are kind of dragging those chromosomes back to the centriole. And now, and we're still in anaphase, now those um, V-shaped chromosomes are on polar uh, ends of the cell. They're no longer in the middle. They're now pulled into the uh, edge or the edges or the polar ends of the cell where the centrioles are. And correction, centrosome is actually, I meant to say centromere, and that's the middle of the chromosome or the, the sister chromatids. That's where the spindle fibers attach themselves within anaphase to pull them apart towards the uh, centrioles. So don't get the centrioles confused with centromeres. Just remember, centrioles are at the poles. They're at the opposite poles of the cell. Centrioles are at the poles. The centromere is just the middle of that chromosome, just the middle of that sister chromatid. So next phase is telophase, and this is kind of like the reverse of prophase um, because now that the chromosomes are kind of at the opposite ends of the cell, we'll see, in telophase, we'll see a reappearance of the nucleolus and uh, the nuclear membrane. So we kind of get our nucleus back. We get the nucleolus, we get the nuclear membrane, and then during this phase, like once we get those membranes back, the, the, the chromosomes unwound themselves back into chromat chromatin or chromatin. So we've just finished completing the division of the nucleus, but now we need to, you know, divide the cytoplasm, and that's where cytokinesis comes in. So cytokinesis is literally just the division of the cytoplasm, and then, which results in two daughter cells. Um, and this uh, cellular division is occurring through an inward movement through the middle of the cell. So that way those two daughter cells, you know, that are splitting apart, each have their own uh, nucleus, nucleolus, the, the chromatin, and their own cytoplasm. It's just kind of pinched in the middle and then until it splits into two. We don't really see this in plants, so this is really specific just to animal cells. Uh, next up, we're going to talk about, what, uh, about the central dogma of protein synthesis. Um, this is very important because... As I mentioned before, proteins play very many important roles in the body. Um, and so making proteins is also extremely important. And they have a very unique, interesting um, way that it, it, that it occurs. Um, so the, the way that the kind of way to remember this or the, the main uh, mnemonic or, or heuristic that most people go by in terms of the central dogma of protein synthesis 
is DNA to RNA to protein. That's kind of like the chain of events that happen. Everything originates with the DNA. Um, and then RNA kind of uh, copies the DNA, which is the DNA is basically the instructions contained within the sections of the DNA is called genes. And those things have the instructions to make different proteins. Um, so there's a whole process of making prote proteins and that's called transcription and translation. These are two different processes. So the first process we're going to go through is transcription. And so we're starting in the nucleolus, which is within the nucleus, which is within the cell. And RNA polymerase is um, going uh, across a strand of DNA, unzipped DNA. It's unzipping the DNA and it's creating mRNA or messenger RNA. And um, essentially what that's doing is it's um, making, um, it's transcribing uh, the information that's in the DNA to the messenger RNA. Because that messenger RNA is just like one single strand as opposed to the double helix that DNA is. And that strand of mRNA can leave the nucleus and go to a ribosome. So once that RNA, that mRNA that was unzipped by RNA polymerase, remember, don't get RNA confused with RNA polymerase. RNA polymerase is what um, helps make the mRNA by transcribing the DNA. Um, so we got the RNA, it's, you know, going out of the, the, the nucleus and it's going to find itself a ribosome. Once it gets to that ribosome, which can be on the rough ER, the rough endoplasmic reticulum, which is located right outside the nucleus for convenience, or it could be a free-floating ribosome, then that mRNA is going to attach itself to that ribosome, and then with the help of tRNA, tRNA is, uh, is called, so uh, once the, um, the mRNA kind of binds to that ribosome, it's going to read the, the codes on the, on the mRNA. Uh, and with the help of transfer um, RNA or tRNA, tRNA is essentially going to bring the amino acids that the um, instructions require uh, to build that amino acid chain, that polypeptide chain. And it's going to keep doing that until it gets to a stop codon. It code, it, the tRNA can... Um, Bring in the amino acid. So there's one amino acid for every three uh, codes. Um, and so that's kind of how, um, you know, protein is made. And once we get to that stop codon, the ribosome releases that protein, that protein, usually in its primary structure. And then it'll kind of fold. And depending on its folding, it could go into its secondary or its tertiary or even maybe its quaternary structure. Um, so that way it can get ready to do whatever that protein it was needed to do, whether it's within the cell or outside the cell. Um, next up, we're going to define apoptosis, uh, which is just uh, cell programmed cell death. It's when the cell explodes. And it's actually a normal function, normal healthy function in human cells that needs to happen because... If it doesn't, it can lead to uncontrolled cell growth, and that's what happens when we get cancer cells and tumors. Um, and so that you know, that's um, apoptosis. Um, another thing that I forgot to mention was the process of DNA replication. 
which is which occurs in S phase um, of interphase, and this is uh, when DNA copies itself, it duplicates, and it gets itself ready for division. And I think it's just important to know that process, uh, which begins when enzymes called helicases unwind the strands of DNA, um, disrupting those weak hydrogen bonds between the bases. And so that that um, enzyme is called DNA polymerase, similar to RNA polymerase, but DNA polymerase is kind of unwinding the strands of DNA and exposing those nitrogenous bases. So once uh, DNA polymerase unzips that double helix, um, it kind of um, the exposes um, this uh, the the DNA base, the nucleotide or nucleic acid bases um, to continue to build more. It's like a zipper attaching to another zipper once you unzip that original zipper. Um, and again, the nucleotides will match up corresponding to their, you know, correct pair or, or we call that complementary nitrogenous bases. And just remember in DNA, there's adenine, guanine, cytosine, and thymine. Um, a good mnemonic is AT. You know, adenine is going to match up with thymine. And C kind of looks like G without a little thing in the middle. So CG kind of matches up together. It's one way to remember the nucle the complementary nitrogenous bases. And uh, just a correction, the unzipping is actually done by an enzyme called DNA helicase or helicase that separates the two strands of the DNA double helix. Um, the DNA polymerase is another enzyme that uses each singular strand as a template to build a new matching DNA strand. So DNA polymerase is responsible for replicating the strand once it unwinds and separates um, thanks to DNA helicase or helicase. And so with the leading strand, um, it's going to synthesize continuously in a 5 to 3 direction by the DNA polymerase. And the lagging strand is going to synthesize in uh, fragments. And then afterwards, DNA ligase kind of joins these fragments together. Um, and the reason why the Okazaki fragments, uh, or the small fragments in the lagging strand, is made that way because it's, going, it's being made in the opposite direction, from the 3' prime end to the 5' prime end. And so it ha because of that, it has to be made into small fraction fragments. So once you have the strands kind of completed by DNA polymerase attaching those RNA bases to the strand, the, the leading strand and the lagging strand, with extra care to the lagging strand, then um, the enzyme called ligase will kind of tie it up, and then well, not tie it up, but kind of. Um, so it'll uh, seal up the fragments of DNA so that both strands form a continuous double strand of DNA, making it so that each strand of DNA is complete. And in a way, it's kind of considered a semi-conservative, you know, formation in that one part of that strand is old and the other part, the other half of it is new. And that's how DNA replicates. Um, and lastly, it's kind of important to be able to calculate um, uh, osmotic pressure, and um, it's it's quite simple, really. Um, 
you're either going if you have a, a non-ionic solution, um, like for example, if you have glucose in the solution, then you're just going to multiply the osmolarity by one, so it's going to stay the same essentially, because um, glucose is non-ionizing. So any non-ionic solution, um, the osmotic when you're calculating that osmotic pressure, you're just going to multiply the osmolarity by one, and that will give you the answer. And then if you have a um, a uh, ionic solution, for example, NaCl is ionizing in a solution. Um, it has two ions, the Na sodium ion and the chlorine ion. If you have an ionic solution, in order to calculate the osmotic pressure, you're just going to multiply the osmolarity by two. So let's say, for example, you know, you had a 0.15 molar osm uh, sodium chloride osmolar, you know, uh, osmos solution. And that's pretty standard for what we want um, when doing, like, a blood transfusion or things like that. When giving, when giving somebody a saline drip, it's usually, that's the concentration that we want, like 0.9% salt or 0.15 molar osmols of NaCl. And so that osmotic pressure is, you're just going to multiply that ionic solution by two, and that will give you the answer that you need, so 0 0.30 uh, osmols. And that concludes um, chapter three uh, review.